The conventional wisdom? Forget about it. Michael Salfino is next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March 22nd. It's our post-Tout Wars edition, show number 11 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tuesday Tout show for you. Fresh off the Tout Wars weekend, we'll have Michael Salfino, a fantasy baseball analyst for the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports, about how the best pitching metric is one you've never used and probably never heard of. Why regressing pitcher hit rates is often exactly the wrong thing to do. And about why innings limits aren't working to limit injuries. We'll also have Michael's sleepers and bleepers for this fantasy season. It's another big Tuesday Tout Show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've got the always controversial Michael Salfino in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. So let's play ball. Michael Salfino writes about baseball and fantasy baseball for the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports, and he's not shy about flouting the conventional wisdom wherever he finds it. Michael Salfino, welcome back to the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Great to be here, Patrick. And it was great to see you at uh, Tout Wars this year. Uh, Had a fun time not only participating in the league and talking about what was going on, but socializing with you and others. Uh, let's talk about Tall Wars for a minute before we get on to some of the stuff you've been writing about. Uh, what trends or developments did you notice that caught you a little bit by surprise? Well, I think two things. Um, in two leagues, one the mixed league, which um, you rarely see the, the strategy of not necessarily punting, starting pitching to the point where every pitcher is a dollar, but just an extreme budget bias in favor of hitting. It's not something that's commonly thought about in mixed leagues, but um, so I'm curious to, to see whether or not that works. And uh, that, the split, that, that owner was Brett Sayre from Baseball Prospectus, and he spent $47 in, in the mixed auction on pitching. And also our mutual friend who we were out to dinner with on Friday night, Steve Moyer, um, as we knew he was going to do, decided to basically punt pitching, although he spent not just the $9 on pitching. I guess it was 13 because he, he, he splurged for Wade Miley at $4. And then the other thing I thought was interesting is, especially in Euro auction specifically, there was so much money in the end game, and I thought that that was causing owners a lot of problems. In the American League League in which I participated, Steve actually outbid me on Wade Miley. I kind of had him as a as a target in that part of the draft near the end. Uh, but uh, the the thing that struck me was the hollowing out of the middle. There was a ton of money floated upwards, so that all the thirty dollar players went for thirty five, and all the twenty five went for thirty, and so forth. And that was pretty uniform down down to about the twenty dollar values. Everybody was going for a ton of money, and then there were some discounts available in those ten to fifteen dollar players here and there, uh, and. And then there was this big fall off, as you said, to the end game where everybody was scrambling around looking for three and four dollar players. And if you look at the rosters in the American League uh, tout draft, you see that every team has quite a few high price guys, quite a few low price one, two, three dollar players, and hardly anybody in that middle ground. I think what was happening was was that the the people with money at the end were waiting for like huge bargains, and they weren't willing to really mix it up. So you had guys that, that I thought 
were bargains relative to the amount of money that was currently in the room in relation to the available player pool, like Jackie Bradley Jr., go for five dollars, which which I think is a is a decent price period, but especially with all that money in the room, and um, nobody was re- really willing to chase him up, and I think that happened with a lot of players who. So instead of those guys going for like ten dollars and a little bit of a fight with that money, that excess money that was in the room, um, and, and getting some in, inflation with the players in those tiers, I think what happened was um, the the people with the money in the end game were waiting for a bigger pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'm not sure that that ever pot of gold ever came at the end of the rainbow, though. No, the problem when you're doing that is, of course, you start running out of players, and eventually either you uh, pay pay a little extra for the guy you really want or you end up with a, mon- a little money left on the table. And uh, something else that, that I heard about was in the National League draft on Sunday morning, uh, one of the tout owners took f- uh, the four top catchers in the National League, putting uh, Derek Norris, I think, at first base, but really uh, a tactic designed to exploit the fact that catching is extremely thin in both leagues, and in the National League, this guy took every one of the top four catchers, and he really put all the other players in the league in a bind, but I don't know if he was trying to drive the price on poor catchers up. If so, it didn't work, because everybody just said, okay, I'll take a $2 catcher then. I mean, if that's what the if that's what the situation is, I'm certainly not going to bid $7 for a $2 catcher. So you have one owner who has four top catchers and everybody else has the dregs but nobody paid over for the dregs well the national league of course as you know it's a little bit tougher because the hitting pool is is so much more shallow because of the lack of the dh so it's um harder to go uh stars and and scrubby in the national league only draft than it is in the american league only draft and i think what maybe happened i'm just speculating with that owner uh, and, I, and i think that's Gianella, right? I think that's right, yeah. My assumption is that he was just really trying to get the guys that he felt were going to get the most playing time, and they just happened to to be catchers. I don't know if, if he actually set out to try to, you know, destroy the, the catcher, the, the pool of catchers, um, but, but obviously after the fact that you could kind of, like, engineer that that was, like, a, a practical result of that strategy, but... I'm not sure that that was the intent, you know, when he's, for example, got like his second catcher, if he was planning to do that. I'm just assuming that those were the guys that were likely to get the most playing time for that price at that stage of the auction. That could be. I don't know when he did this and uh, how quickly he acquired all these catchers. Catchers don't typically lead anybody in in playing time, however, so uh, if it was his strategy to do that, the only way it could have been is, as you say, at the time for the price, that that was the way to go. But it could be he looked around and said, you know, among the 450 or 470 at bat players available right now, I might as well take a catcher, and really he could accomplish both ends, right? He could say, I'm going to get some value at this position, and I'm going to put stress on everybody else at the catcher position as a slot. Yeah, I think what happens a lot of times with, with catcher, that's the only hitting position where it happens. There are some people who are just not going to compete for catchers because their strategy is to basically punt the catching position, not to punt a category. It also happens in, in categories uh, like steals and in saves where not everybody is competing, so you get inflation in, uh, in terms of the actual value is. So there is a, a chance sometimes, I think, in auctions, especially in only leagues, 
where because of uh, if if a certain number of people decide to sit that position out, there's a chance that you're not only not going to pay position scarcity prices for catcher, but that the catcher actual at bats and playing time and in, in stats, just the raw stats irrespective of the position, might actually end up being slightly deflated. It was a fine weekend at Tout Wars in New York City. A lot of fun. I hope uh, some of our listeners managed to follow along to all or part of it on Sirius XM Radio. And a lot of good conversation about the game, a lot of good conversation about tactics and strategy. So it's a great, uh, great time. Uh, Michael, moving on, uh, looking at your own work at Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal, uh, you believe strongly that the uh, stat that that is uh, strikeouts minus walks divided by innings pitch, and you call it, and I'm quoting here, the best tool we have in in the pitcher projection toolbox. But you go on to caution that it's all contextual. So I have two questions. First, why do you believe this uh, strikeout minus walks per innings pitched is the best way to assess pitchers? Well, I think that it's been proven to be the one that is, uh, you know, correlates most year to year. So, um, but what I mean by contextual is that the that all of these statistics correlate so poorly that the best one isn't necessarily one that's eminently bettable. It just means that it just happens to be the best among a relatively poor uh, group of statistics to predict pitching performance relative to what we get with uh, arguably projecting hitter performance. Um, And I think the other reason why I like this stat is because it's not a fantasy category. So I think what ideally what you're looking for in a projection stat or model is something that will generally predict overall pitching performance that is not a direct overlap or is not even a, a direct fantasy statistic that we're tracking. So obviously you can't say, hey, I think the best pitchers are the pitchers with the best whips. I mean, yeah, I think I actually do think that, but that's a category. So you're not, you know, there's no way to really use that to leverage it to any sort of projection advantage when it comes to uh, ranking players and trying to decide who you're going to draft. So that's why, that, that I think primarily is the reason. First of all, it's probably slightly the best statistic in terms of projecting year-to-year performance. And, but more importantly, it's not something that everybody's looking at, so you can get an edge when you see some of the outliers in this statistic relative to the statistics that we track, especially earn run average. And indeed, you say in that same Yahoo Sports article that what fantasy owners need to do is to find the bargains and busts by looking at the differences between where the pitcher is being drafted in the ADPs or in, uh, I guess, in auction value measures, if you can find uh, tables of that. And then you compare that to where they rank on that uh, the metrics list of strikeouts minus walks per innings pitched. And so if you find a guy who's very high on the metric list and quite low on the ADPs, chances are you're looking at a bargain. And, of course, if, if it's the other way around, quite low on, this, on the uh, metric list but quite high on the ADPs, you're looking at a potential bust. Give us a few examples of uh, starting pitchers who are winners by the measure of uh, having the metric be much higher than their ADPs. Near the top of the draft, the pitcher who I think is the biggest bargain is Noah Syndergaard, who our friend Gene McCaffrey got, um, as he was hoping, 
for uh, for I think a relative bargain, especially compared to the Mets pitchers in general, who I think are all slightly discounted. But he was even discounted in the context of the Mets uh, top trio. So I think he's a guy. He was eighth in the statistic in K's minus walks divided by innings pitch. And in Yahoo, which was, I wrote this article for Yahoo Fantasy, so we use the Yahoo ADPs. And these aren't just starting pitcher ranks. These are just overall where they are actually overall being drafted. His average ADP is 60. Um, but I think Syndergaard is a bargain anywhere uh, after 12 to 15 pitchers are off the board, where I think you could safely get Syndergaard at this point. Uh, in Yahoo, he's the 17th pitcher off the board. So considering he ranks 8th in the stat, and I think the stat is predictive, uh, I think Syndergaard is very likely going to be a top 10 starting pitcher. So any mild discount that you can get uh, with these top guys, I think, is, is something that's uh, very attractive. And, and so uh, that he would be the, the guy that I would really be targeting and say like the fourth round if he could slip that far or even late third. And then some of the other guys who do well in the stat are Drew Smiley, Michael Pineda, uh, and this is, again, relative to where they're actually being picked. Smiley's 12th in the stat. Uh, Pineda's 13th. Uh, Iglesias is 17th. And Jason Hamill, that's a guy that I really like. I think Hamill is kind of like a poor man's Garrett Cole. When you, when you stack them up projection-wise, they're not that different. So... Um, and Cole is going probably, you know, 10 to 15 rounds ahead of Hamill. So if I'm going to have one of those guys, it's definitely going to be Hamill, and I'm definitely not going to be drafting Cole where his ADP is. It's interesting when you make these kind of assessments for starting pitchers or any players, you always have to keep in the back of your mind the opportunity cost down the road. You have to be thinking ahead, well, if I, if I use this pick or if I use this $26 now to get this guy – what am I not going to be able to get later on that might be even more helpful? And and in this case, you point out, hey, if you can get uh, a Jason Hamill, who's a Garrett Cole mirror image, maybe not quite the same, but if you can save eighteen rounds or eighteen dollars in an auction in in the in doing so, that means you're going to be able to apply that to greater effect at some other spot in your in your roster. That's the essence of of how these drafts and auctions work. Uh, do you have a couple of examples of pitchers being drafted too early or being overvalued based on their position uh, lower down the uh, strikeout minus walk per innings pitch list? Well, Felix Hernandez is a guy that a lot of people are expecting a bounce back on. He's he's uh, he's not really he's not bad at this statistic because these are pitchers that had a minimum of eight starts. Uh, last year, so the list is is rather long. It's not a conventional innings pitch qualifier list. Uh, so Fernandez was 42nd in the stat, which isn't bad, but he's the 41st player off the board. So that that's obviously an indication that strictly based on his strikeout and walk performance last year, Hernandez is being overdrafted. Um, Tyson Ross, though, I think is the best example of this. Uh, I really don't understand why Ty- Tyson Ross gets generally so much love in the fantasy community. Uh, he's going right now with the 96th overall pick, and that doesn't seem so bad. But then when you look at his brother, Joe, you're getting him 150 picks later. So I would much rather uh, 
you, you know, either save the money if it's an auction or just wait um, so much longer and, and stack up a hitter in that Tyson Ross slot, knowing that I can get Joe Ross, even if I take him a couple rounds ahead of his ADP, I'm still going to get, I think, a huge bargain and a, play, and a pitcher who I would actually put in the same tier as Tyson Ross. Wow, that's quite something. As you said, Tyson Ross was quite the buzz at the Tout Wars weekend. A lot of people saying potential Cy Young, big breakout year, all that kind of stuff. And maybe they're looking at the wrong Ross brother. That's that's interesting. Uh, Michael, before we leave the topic, most of the discussion that we've had here and also in your article was about starting pitchers. I wonder if the stat also works to assess relief pitchers. I think it does, I, uh, but... I, there's a stat that I like more that is actually going to be the subject of my Yahoo column this week. And this is just real simple, almost back-of-the-envelope type of... Uh, 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 it's a statistic that's just so easy to uh, conceptualize, and that's just strictly K's minus innings pitched. So whatever your overage is there, when you're looking at closers especially... Um, you could take that number. So say a guy, say, say a guy is projected to get 86 strikeouts in 70 innings, right? So that would be, he'd be plus 16, uh, with his K's minus his innings pitched. But the value of those K's, I really look for my closers to boost the strikeout efficiency of my overall staff. So what you do is then you multiply that those 16 extra Ks by nine innings, and then you get, uh, in this case it would be, if my math is correct, 144 innings. So he, uh, you know, that pitcher, that hypothetical pitcher that we're just talking about, would boost the K-9 of the rest of the pitching staff by one full K per nine for that 144 innings. Um, And there are pitchers who are much better than that, obviously. So if you could stack up two relievers like that, forget about projecting their saves, their ERAs, their whips. Just look at their strikeout efficiency relative to their innings pitched. And I think that's a way that you can really cheaply maximize the overall strikeout efficiency of your staff by essentially pairing these dominant strikeout relievers with your starting staff. And, of course, uh, speaking of backs of envelopes, I haven't done any calculations, but I bet those high striker relievers are pretty helpful in those ratio categories, even if that's not the direct intent. Exactly. Now, the thing is, they may not have been last year, and their projection may not reflect that, but I think um, given that strikeout dominance, they are obviously good bets to help you in your averages as well. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Michael Salfino, Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports. And Michael, in another article you wrote in March, you made an interesting assertion that seems to challenge the conventional wisdom. That seems to be your specialty, actually. I'm glad of it, too. You say that batting average on balls in play, or BABIP, which uh, Baseball HQ subscribers call hit rate, is, and I quote again, the most misunderstood and dangerous statistical tool in our projection toolbox. Wow, what does that mean? Well, because I think what we do, it, it just begs for us to regress pitchers and uh, to, to the league average rate. And I think that that is um, a very useful thing and challenging us to 
either do it or for, or to look for reasons why we shouldn't be doing it. But I do think that hitters who are really good at either uh, controlling the content based on tr- the trajectory of the hit, because obviously fly balls um, uh, that are balls in play result in outs much more frequently than ground balls. And also the contact uh, level of the ball in play is, is clearly a big factor in whether or not it becomes a hit or an out. And there are some pitchers who are just really good at limiting how well hit a ball in play is generally. So clearly, in my opinion anyway, I just accept that those pitchers should have much better uh, BABIPs than average because the contact that they are yielding on balls in play is relatively poor. So what I did in that Yahoo article is I figured out what the league average was for well-hit BABIP, um, and then I, I looked at the pitchers who had the highest or, the, or, or who were best at limiting BABIP in 2015, and I saw in every single case those pitchers had a well-hit BABIP rate well below the major league average and often so significantly below the major league average that even though their BABIP for the year was below the major league average, they were actually unlucky in yielding their BABIP because they limited the, the hit quality on the balls in play was so poor that their BABIP should have been even lower. That was the interesting thing. I thought the analysis led you to say that we were regressing the pitchers in, in exactly the wrong direction. Exactly. And the guy, you know, one of the textbook guys for this, and you could say, well, maybe it's a factor of his defense, but, you know, that's a, a little bit harder for me to, to uh, accept, although it's clearly possible, at least to some degree. But Matt Harvey's BABIP last year was uh, 277. But he only allowed well-hit BABIP. His well-hit BABIP rate was 108. The league average, I think, was 167 last year. So when you do all the math, Harvey's actual BABIP, based on his skill in limiting contact last year, should have been 240, not 277. So you have people regressing Harvey upwards where they should actually be regressing him downwards. He was actually unlucky. That is interesting. I remember a few years ago when the when the uh, idea of a 30% hit rate or a 300 BABIP was first mooted, uh, we immediately applied the same rule to hitters and said every hitter should regress to a 300 hit rate. And I remember thinking right at the time, well, it might make sense for pitchers, but it makes no sense for hitters because, you know, Manny Ramirez hits the ball, and Manny Ramirez was current at the time, Manny Ramirez hits the ball way harder and way more line drivey than, say, you know, Willie Bloomquist does. And it seems ludicrous that they would have identical batting averages on balls in play because one guy's hitting it hard and the other guy's not. And now it's turning out that, we we decided at Baseball HQ at the time that we were going to use a three-year rolling average of individual batters' BABIPs because uh, we didn't have hearted data and much trajectory data, but we had their past records. And if Manny Ramirez was consistently 360, 360, 360, 350, it seemed ludicrous to regress him to 300. And ditto for somebody who was 270, 270, 270 to regress him up. It just seemed not to make any sense. And now, now that the... Uh, 
the information is more and more available, it seems quite logical to take the step that you've taken and say an individual pitcher can control a lot of this kind of stuff, much in the same way that our mutual friend Gene McCaffrey observed about Jared Weaver years ago and infield pop-up flies. He seemed to be getting uh, way more of them than everybody else, and therefore we had to say we don't quite know how he's doing it perhaps, but we have to say it's a skill because he does it every darn year. And a a guy like that, especially with the pop-ups, and a guy who also showed up on this chart is Marco Estrada. And people are regressing Estrada, and I think wisely, um, because even when you look at his well-hit data last year, his BABIP of 217 last year was lower than it should have been. But rather than regressing him up to, you know, something close to 300, he actually earned a 245 BABIP last year. And then when you factor in his propensity to generate pop-ups, then something below 245 becomes reasonable, maybe not quite 217. But you could see how a pitcher like Marco Estrada, especially in an AL-only league, could actually end up being a value where... Uh, And ironically, what happens in cases like this is the smarter players actually um, end up screwing themselves because the dumb guys who just look at last year's stats and say, hey, this guy Strada's really good, I'm going to take him, they're actually outsmarting the smart guys. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, uh, I had Marco Estrada on high on my target list this year, partly for your the reason from your article and also from a conversation I had with Gene about pitchers who are mediocre skill-wise and velocity-wise, but they pitch very successfully up in the zone, and that creates a lot of opportunities because pitcher, pitchers who are up in the zone have an advantage over hitters who have been coached and t- trained and told to focus low in the zone because that's where the strike zone always has been, and there's an advantage there. You say in the article, Michael, that you prefer human observers to calculate or to express uh, ball, batted ball trajectory over algorithms and stuff like that, and I'm wondering if you could explain what that means, but also are you having any sense of confidence or optimism about the new wave of stats with the measurements by radar and sonar and camera tracking and so forth to get that trajectory and batted ball speed more consistent through technology? I do have I do have a lot of confidence in that. I think we're definitely on the right track with that, and I think at some point that's going to supersede all of the the, the human uh, quality into eyeballing some of this stuff. But I think right now we're at the point where even the people who are at the forefront of this technology agree that, you know, they are still working out some, some problems with it. So I think until we reach the point where they have total confidence in that data, that I will prefer the inside edge method of just judging whether or not a ball was well hit or not based on two scouts looking at each play rather than using, say, for example, a line drive algorithm. And because we all know that there are many instances where a ball is technically on the scorecard a line drive but was not remotely well hit. Do you not have room in your uh, list for softly hit line drives versus hard hit ones, or is a, is a line drive by definition should be a hard hit ball? In the... Um, algorithms that we see when we see line drive rate that's going to go in as a line drive i'm certain but the inside edge guys are not going to score that that little um powder puff line drive as a well-hit ball yeah but can it still be a line drive even though it wasn't well hit or does it have to be well hit to be a line drive yeah i think uh, when when you're when you're looking at the the data that's not compiled by inside edge 
that ball will be counted as a line drive, I'm certain. The uh, reason I ask is uh, the Baseball HQ data feeds that we get, I think from Baseball Info Solutions, actually score them as soft, medium, and hard hit line drives so you can parse them separately. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and it does. It, it is good because it turns out that the uh, the uh, batting average on balls in play on hard hit line drives is around seventy percent, like a seven hundred average, and that's very consistent across all players. So you see very little movement from a good hitter to a poor hitter in that statistic. There's more of them from a good hitter, of course, but if a if a poor hitter hits a, a very well hit line drive, it's going to be a hit seventy percent of the time. Basically, if he doesn't hit it right at somebody. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of this stuff with trajectory is going to become stuff that's very useful for descriptive purposes. Uh, and I was talking uh, about this with um, some uh, some of the people at Major League Baseball um, as part of my work for the Wall Street Journal. Um, so what I think is, is going to happen and what they're confident is going to happen very quickly is we're going to be able to really analyze what a player's batting average should be based on how fast his batted ball speed is and what the trajectory was of each um, batted ball. And then they would compile the averages to make one cumulative average. But the, the, the problem with that is that might be really, really, really good for describing what a player's batting average should be. But is it going to be good for predicting what a player's batting average will be, to me, and maybe this is because I really have a bias towards trying to think as simply as possible, um, I think just batted ball speed will be more predictive than hit trajectory because I think the ability to square up the ball and the bat speed that is generated to hit that ball, which is something that cannot be measured by any of these technologies, by the way, bat speed happens too fast and too isolated an area to measure, um, I think that that batted ball speed is going to become the best predictive tool that we get in the toolbox once it's publicly available. And why is it that they can't get the bat speed? Uh, I'm, I'm told that it's just the, the technology is just not capable of tracking the bat speed that happens so quickly in such a small area. I, I mean, I don't, I don't really know the physics of it, but um, that's not even something that is on the horizon, is my understanding. So that's why, really, what, what they're trying to do is to just sort of approximate bat speed with batted ball speed, which would clearly correlate. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, at the, especially right at the moment of impact, the, the batted ball is going to be pretty reflective of the batted ball speed. But I wonder if they could, uh, for instance, I know that the computer systems the NBA uses to uh, to track players has an individual identifier on each player's shoulder, I think it is, sewed into the uniform so they can track them all in real time using their um, machines that they have up in the rafters of the building. I wonder if could they just mandate that every bat have a little sensor of some kind embedded in the, in the barrel end so that the, uh, some kind of machine could track it independently of everything else that's happening around it? A bat loaded with technology instead of ball bearings, super <laughs> balls, or cork, right? None of which work, by the way. Right. Um, that's that's pretty fascinating. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess they could do that, uh, but I, I I don't really know. I'm I'm assuming somebody would have thought of that because it seems um, like a like an obvious solution to the problem. But maybe there are 
complications once you start once you open up that can of worms as to you know what players would then be able to do to their bats. Well, you make the league do it, or you know, make make uh, you know have some kind of league officer on hand to, to uh, at at Hillary and Bradsby or Mizuno or whoever makes the guy's bat, and just say you got to embed this uh, this little chip in the top of it. I, I, the worry that pops into my mind is what happens if it works loose and a guy takes a cut and this thing comes comes flying out. You know, and the next thing you know, you got a pitcher who's got a sensor sticking in his eye and, and doesn't quite know where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm assuming it would be like almost like a chip. You know, like these things are so small now, but yeah, that's what I think too. I, I think that uh, I think I'm going to call the patent office tomorrow. Is what I think. You should. <laughs> this is a great idea, Patrick. How about that? Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Michael Salfino from the Wall Street Journal and from uh, Yahoo Sports. And in an article earlier this year in the in the in the journal, Michael, you say innings limits, which are very popular in baseball these days, as we all know, in fact, are not helping pitchers avoid injuries. It seems intuitive that it must less wear and tear, less injuries. And you say no. How come? Well. I, because injuries just aren't going down. They're at like an all-time high. I think I had it in the article, something like 30% of pitchers have had Tommy John surgery now. So it's not something I don't think that is, is actually working. I think these rates of injuries are at an all-time high. So I don't really understand why you are incurring a definite cost and limiting the innings of pitchers to some generally applicable standard and not achieving a certain benefit. So I, I just think the math with the, the innings limits is just really bad because on the one hand, you're definitely paying a price, but on the other hand, the benefit is, is not clear, and I think the evidence suggests that it, it doesn't even exist at all. I'll play devil's advocate here, Michael, and I'll, I'll suggest this. Could it be the case that innings limits do work, but we're, they're not being imposed early enough or properly? I guess that's possible, but, you know, how would we know? I think what's, what some people are saying, and there are people who have studied th- this issue uh, last year, the University of Waterloo uh, from, from your home country, uh, found zero correlation between innings increases and injury. And the lead investigator said, this is a quote, clearly current methods for preventing injury aren't working. Um, and what he said, and he's a biomechanics expert there, he advised his teams to, quote, to look at how hard a pitcher's body is working during each inning, each pitch, and design strength programs tailored to the individual. So... We're just at a, at the point, you know, last year uh, 30 pitchers underwent the Tommy John surgery procedure, and I just don't really see how you're actually getting the kind of benefit that you're expecting from this if injuries, after all of these years, and remember we've been doing innings limits for how long? I mean, since at least like 2000, I would say. If we haven't seen a decline in the rate of injury at this point, why would anybody think that it's working? And in fact, we not only have not seen a decline, we've seen an increase. And again, I'll play devil's advocate, but 
we don't know what the injury rate would have been had there not been innings limits, right? So if you if you could go back in time, remove all the innings limits, would that injury rate be 50 Tommy Johns per year? Would the injury rate among pitchers be 20 points higher than it is? And we, we have no way of knowing because there's no way to to untest the system in that way. But I, I'm curious, by the way, the University of Waterloo, not only my home country, my hometown, that's where I live. Uh, do you think or have you seen any evidence to suggest that innings limits per game might be more effective than innings limits per season? That's interesting. I never thought of that. What I've often maintained is why don't they just count pitches instead of innings because you're penalizing the more efficient pitchers. But what I was told is that the assumption of the people who, who think that the innings limits do work is that it's the process of actually taking the break between the innings and then warming up that actually uh, increases the, the load on the, on the ligament, theoretically. So, um, but, you know, an innings limit per game, that, that seems like a, a decent option, but I don't think it's ever going to happen because you're not going to have a manager who's in a one nothing game with his pitcher pitching a one-hitter in the seventh inning with, like, 11 strikeouts and throwing, like, 98 pitches, and, and then they're going to, you know, take him out of the game. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's probably not something that's going to go over well with fans and baseball analysts at this time. And probably with that pitcher himself who's pitching a jam and uh, somebody says, okay, you hit seven innings out. And, uh, of course, that affects possible bonus payments for, you know, wins and strikeouts and so forth. Fantasy owner's probably not too pleased either. I'm going to guess if it's a one-all tie and you don't get the win uh, as it turns out. But I'm curious what you said about pitch limits rather than inning limits. And I've heard and read about... uh, that there's, the focus really should be on high-stress pitch counts rather than pitch counts in general, that the uh, that the damage is done when a pitcher's, especially pitching from the stretch with runners on, later on in the game after he's already thrown 65 or 70 pitches, and all of a sudden he has to battle through an inning where he's got you know, two, three base runners, he's given up a couple of runs, the, the inning pitch count is starting to creep up over 30 or 35, and we see that, and... Uh, I haven't seen any scientific research to this effect, but it sure seems intuitive to believe that you know coasting through a, a three-up, three-down inning with two ground ball outs and a, and a pop-up is a lot easier and should be qualitatively considered different than you know struggling through a 35-pitch two-run inning. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. But I think you know the era of baseball that we grew up watching. I think that there was a much more velocity variance from a pitcher within a game that was purposeful. And I think right now, especially when you look at the data, you really don't see that variance from pitch to pitch in an inning, for, for example. So in other words, you know, when you're facing the, the number five hitter who has a platoon advantage against you with a runner on base, you're really trying to dial up some extra velocity versus facing the number eight hitter with nobody on the next inning. Like, the, the data doesn't really show the way that we always perceived it to be back in the days when we were, you know, kids watching, say, like Tom Seaver, like he wasn't going to throw his A-plus fastball to every hitter the entire game. And it seems, at least judging by the radar guns, that that's what pitchers basically are doing. Like they're, they're, just, try, they're just like maxing out seemingly at every pitch as opposed to there are a handful of guys who can dial it up periodically. But that doesn't seem to be a general thing. Or do you disagree with that? What is your What is your sense of that? No, I think that's true because I can remember, you know, even back in the Greg Maddox era, here was a guy who he could throw hard, but he seldom did. He was 
very capable at getting guys out by mixing speeds, mixing locations. Uh, there are anecdotes about his ability to manage at bats that are you know bordering on legendary. But I'm wondering if we go back to you know everything was better in my day. Kind of, I wonder how many pitchers got injured and blew out in in our day that we don't know about because they just didn't keep as close of track. You know, we we look at. You know, your Bob Gibsons and your Don Drysdales and your Seavers, and you say, look at this guy. He had a 20-year career throwing 600 strikeouts a, a, a season, you know, kind of thing. And he did it. Steve Carlton, why he pitched, uh, you know, with on on four hours rest, uh, triple headers. And, we, you know, we get, we get kind of all full of ourselves about how great these pitchers were. But was the injury rate higher then, lower then? Do we know? Yeah, and the other thing is the technology is so much better to diagnose these injuries. I mean, you could see, like, the slightest tear. I don't think that technology existed right. uh, back in, you know, the 70s and 1980s. So, so yeah, that's a good point. And plus, velocity is at an all-time high. I mean, it's the most prized commodity in pitching now. It didn't used to always be that way, or maybe there just wasn't uh, a big enough population of pitchers capable of throwing that hard. But now... If, if you're a, a young pitcher and you don't throw like 94 miles an hour, I mean, you're like a French prospect, basically. And another thing is, uh, back in, in the 70s or so, I don't remember college baseball and high school baseball being as organized and competitive as they were at the high school level. You have traveling teams, guys are pitching in, in their high school leagues and then in big tournaments and national exposure, and they're also maybe playing, uh, you know, in... Uh, whatever the little league equivalent is, but a, a non-academic uh, pitching program as well. So they could be getting two or three starts a week and they tend to be overused by coaches who are a little bit too focused on winning rather than development. Whereas back in the day, I remember the example of, of the New York Mets when they had Nolan Ryan, when he was first brought up to the major leagues, they, they didn't, I don't think, have an innings limit on him per se, but he also didn't start as many games as he might have because they used him in this long relief here, a few innings there. You know, they, I think they tried to keep him, because he was a young pitcher with great promise, they tried to develop his arm through the major league experience rather than just saying, as we do now to our Steven Strasburgs and so forth, hey, 21-year-old kid, get out there and throw 95 miles an hour for seven innings. Well, also, Ryan famously couldn't really find the plate early in his career with any kind of consistency so um you know sandy koufax was a guy like that from another generation that we never really even witnessed so um i don't know if that was really by design or just the practical result of his inability to control walks which at the time was um probably the most prized skill with pitchers at that time, anyway, the, the uh, strikeouts were considered a poor trade-off for a guy who's going to get a lot of walks, and now I don't think that's quite the same. But what do you make of the idea that uh, we put a lot of stress on pitchers at very young ages before their arms are fully physically developed, and uh, because they get all of these innings uh, at the high school, at the high school age, non-academic level, and then at college, they're getting a lot of a lot of innings, a lot of pitches on still developing arms. Could that be a, a, a cause of this issue once they hit the big leagues and all of a sudden find themselves hurt at age 23? I think it is, but again, I think that that's tracked with velocity. The, the medical data that I have seen um, in the medical journals says that there is a high correlation between uh, velocity, pitching velocity, and Tommy John surgery, um, just because the ligaments, especially for younger individuals, aren't fully developed. But even as pitchers get older and at the major league ages, 
uh, velocity tends to correlate with some of these problems as well. So I think that there is an issue with throwing too hard. And even a guy like Noah Syndergaard, who looks like, you know, he's straight out of Marvel Comics, um, perhaps as a starting pitcher, his insane velocity, I think he averaged 97 miles an hour on fastballs last year as a starter, which is just crazy. Um, that might actually end up being a detriment. Maybe it would be better if he dialed it back a little bit and didn't throw at that maximum velocity to all batters, but just was capable of it. If, if that's something that he could control to that extent. Now I know that that's a, a very mild adjustment that maybe is not within the realm of human capability to when you're able to throw a 97 mile an hour fastball to dial it back to 94. Maybe if you try to dial it back, you'll throw it like 89 and get hammered. I mean, I don't know, but it would be nice if they could do it, I think. Also, it seems like they'd run the risk of lo- losing control because it would be a biomechanical change. You know, there's that. There's a lot that goes into making that 97-mile-an-hour fastball what it is, and if you change any part of it, you might be also changing parts of it you would rather not change. But overall, Michael, don't you think pitching has been described accurately, I think, as a very unnatural motion, and the University of Waterloo guy says, you know, fix their mechanics and there's something to that, but it... Their mechanics is what lets them throw 97 miles an hour, whatever their mechanics are. And if you change them, then you're going to maybe find some um, deleterious results rather than always advantageous ones. That is, you're going to be trading a little bit longer uh, of a career for a less effective career. Do you think maybe there is no answer to this question? There may not be, but the the one pitcher who uh, I have a lot of respect for, who I talked to this about, said that each pitcher should be looked at individually not so much in terms of some of the more imprecise measures that that that, that study seemed to cite uh, with the biomechanics, but just in terms of uh, how they happen to be throwing at that stage of the game and or at that stage of the season, and if they are showing signs of fatigue, um, or if they are honestly encouraged to to communicate some of these issues that they're having on the at the actual onset of them, then he thought that that would be the best approach. In other words, take each case individual with that pitcher and monitor them and communicate with them to the point where um, for that pitcher, so that specific individual pitcher doesn't reach a point where their workload is overstrenuous. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting conundrum, and, and uh, I think uh, something that – maybe the training staff or maybe managers need to be made more aware of are the signs of fatigue and uh, and more finely detailed than they are now. Obviously, if a guy all of a sudden starts missing wide or missing high, it's usually a sign that he's tiring, and we all know that. But are there subtler signs that they need to be aware of and be looking for? And maybe catchers need to be trained a little better to be on the lookout for certain tip-offs at the very subtle levels that say, this guy's starting to lose it, and let's get him out of there before he's... A, costing us a game, but B, also costing himself some some possible injury time. Yeah, and you know, and there are some guys, obviously, who when they start a game, there's a pitcher who just doesn't have his fastball that day, and that's something that we've all come to accept, that he doesn't have his, his A fastball in that specific outing. Maybe that's an outing where he should really be on a very strict innings limit. You hope to get five innings out of him and get him out of the game. Um, because he's just not, there's, there's some sort of fatigue or something there that's wrong. And, and obviously, 
if there's a drop in velocity during an outing that's an outlier relative to that pitcher's established pattern, maybe that can be uh, an indicator that would remove the human element of both communication and eyeballing something and make it something more quantifiable. Yeah, it's it's all very interesting. I know that from the fantasy point of view, I sure would like to be able to have a more useful or more uh, powerful injury prediction tool for starting pitchers rather than, hey, he threw 200 innings each of the last two years. He's a good bet to do it again this year, which I find that's pretty much what we do. But it's uh, it has certain limitations, and I'd, I'd like to be able to avoid the guy who's who's been an A reliability pitcher, but all the signs are pointing to him having a, a blowout. If only like uh, something you're saying about Noah Syndergaard with this extremely heavy velocity, you know, is is he riding for a fall? If so, is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next year? I sure would like to know before I spend, you know, twenty five or thirty dollars at auction. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Michael Salfino from the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports. And uh, during this preseason, Michael, I've been asking experts to talk about our sleepers and bleepers. Sleepers, of course, just undervalued players, and bleepers are players you just don't want on your roster for any bleeping reason. Let's start in the National League. Who's a hitter sleeper? Grychuk, because he had a 204 well hit average last year, according to Inside Edge, which was the seventh best in baseball. And also, Ryan Zimmerman was really good in that well hit rate. He was top 20 as well. And Zimmerman's price is, I think, depressed because of obviously his injury history, but he's still young enough, I think, where. At his price, he could deliver a lot of surplus value. I was having a talk with um, one of the experts at Tau who said that he was under the impression that Zimmerman had a degenerative hip condition, and I saw something for the shoulder but not for the hip. The hip would concern me. I I am not aware of any issue like that with Ryan Zimmerman. And how about a hitter sleeper in the American League? For an AL sleeper, I think Kettle Marte. Is, is somebody who is, you know, arguably appropriately valued. Like, I think he went for $15 in your league, which is not a bargain. He'd been going for, like, maybe 9 or 10 in AL-only leagues. I think that was his labor price. I think if you can get him in, say, like, the 15th round or later in a draft or um, for $10, $12 or so in an AL-only auction, I think that that's a very good price because I think he could be like sort of a poor man's uh, Altuve in giving you good batting average and very projectable speed that hasn't really been in evidence yet, even in his minor league record. But his comp, according to the scouts that I've talked to, is Jose Reyes. So you would expect a little bit more stolen base upside there. Uh, My AL bleeper hitter is Adam Jones. Um, he was 142nd last year with a 139 well-hit average. And my NL bleeper hitter, Christian Yellick, Mr. Ground Ball, 144, essentially tied with Jones, also 139 well-hit average. Um, he's not a guy that I just can't see him being on any of my teams. Okay, Michael, uh, let's move over to the pitching mound. Uh, who's your National League sleeper pitcher? Well, some of the guys that we've, you know, talked about already, I mean, I think Joe Ross would be a guy that would, that uh, based on my data and my models, he's a guy that comes out. He also has really good velocity, and there's a high correlation between uh, velocity and fantasy success. So, so uh, based on where he's being drafted, I would say Ross would be my guy. And in the American, who's your sleeper pitcher? I'm going to go somebody completely different who I just happen to think is a really – a 
big bargain where he's being picked, and that's uh, Iwakuma. Um, I think he's a really good pitcher. For some reason, uh, he's he's being docked, I think, unfairly now. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously he failed a, a physical, uh, but it couldn't have been that bad since he immediately signed with the Mariners, and the Mariners also offered him um, arbitration. So you would think that they wouldn't do that if they knew that he was hurt. So I would, uh, working on the assumption that if you look hard enough, you could find something wrong with every pitcher, I'm going to say that Iwakuma is my sleeper pitcher. And how about moving over to the bleepers in the National League, a pitcher you uh, absolutely would not roster? In the National League, I, I really don't like Gio Gonzalez at all. A lot of people still think that he's got some significant upside. I wouldn't want Gio Gonzalez even well below his ADP and auction uh, general auction value. And how about in the American League, a bleeper pitcher? The guy that I really wouldn't want this year is probably Felix, given his price. I think when you look at Hernandez's age, his uh, relative velocity in the context of his career, um, and his performance last year, especially in the K and walk metrics, I think it's very reasonable to conclude, and it's the almost inescapable conclusion is that Hernandez is uh, much closer to the end of his career than he is to the prime of his career. You said something, Michael, that interests me about Gio Gonzalez, is that we've kind of been waiting for him for a long time to realize the potential that everybody always said he has. At what age do you think a pitcher, really, we have to give up on him? I think probably about the age that, that Gonzalez is at now. Gonzalez has been somebody who I think has been significantly better in his past than he has been the last couple of years, especially when you adjust for park factors and league. But I don't really see him being able to leverage his skills to some uncharted level that we haven't seen in the last couple of years at his age now. And I think the most likely outcome with him is going to be regression further from where he's currently at. So we've seen the best of Gio Gonzalez, is what you're saying, and from here it's a kind of a slow, steady decline, is what you're expecting, or a big, rapid fall-off? Exactly, and I think the market's doing the reverse. I think they're expecting a rebound. And I think that's my argument pretty much with Felix Hernandez as well. Well, that's for sure. Michael Salfino's sleepers, Randall Grichuk of St. Louis and Kettle Marte of Seattle on the pitcher's mound, Hisashi Iwakuma of Seattle and Joe Ross and... On the bleeper side, Christian Yelich of Miami, Adam Jones of Baltimore, Gio Gonzalez of the Washington Nationals, and Felix Hernandez of Seattle. Boy, a lot of sleepers and bleepers on Seattle this year. People in Seattle can't get mad at me because I do like Iwakuma. And Kettle Marte, so it's kind of a kind of an even split. And Marte, too, that's right. Reminds me of what went on at uh, at uh, Tell Wars American League. After the draft was over, I got a chance to be interviewed about my team and what I'd done in the draft room on SiriusXM. And the first question they asked me is, why did you target all those Detroit Tigers? And it turned out I had six of them, I think. And I said, honestly, you know, I didn't notice. I, I mean, it was, certainly wasn't that part of any kind of plan. And I, do, I don't believe in the don't have too many guys from one team thing. I just... I just don't see why you would want to do that. At, at its core, fantasy baseball is about pitcher versus hitter. It's not about Detroit versus Oakland, you know, at any stage of the game. I mean, there are park issues, and I probably, if I'm a, a, uh, acquiring a pitcher, I'm going to try to avoid the American League East, if at all possible, because of all the slugging teams in that division. But, yeah, it caught me completely by surprise. So it's, it's funny when you start talking about individual players that really what team they play for falls off. You got a Tiger stack. 
Yeah, for a DFS, I've got a Tiger stack. That's right. And a pretty good one, I think. For the whole year. That's right, yeah. So maybe we'll see. Uh, I, I don't really like their chances that much, but I think they're going to score a ton of runs, so I'll, I'll take that. That's for sure. Well, I like Justin Upton. Did you? Was he one of the guys you got? He was indeed. Miguel Cabrera, Ian Kinsler, the pitcher Jordan Zimmerman, and Justin Upton. Justin Upton's a guy that I think has some stolen base upside if they ever decide to use it. We did a pull from uh, high school related to the Combine where we got Perfect Game USA to tell us the fastest guys that they've timed in their history of doing this since, like, 1999, I think. And the fastest guy that they ever timed as an 18-year-old was Justin Upton. So I think he's got the ability to run more if he feels like it. I guess a lot's going to depend on uh, what they think about philosophically about their lineup and whether they want uh, you know, guys to be running the team out of innings with all those boppers that they have on the squad. But uh, I also got Ian Kinsler and on the pitching staff, Jordan Zimmerman, uh, kind of a number three, two-ish, three-ish starter based on what was available. So yeah, I've got four, I guess five of them which is going to uh, make it easy to pick what game to watch on a given night. And who was my sleeper hitter in the national, a sleeper pitcher in the National League? I forgot. Ross? In the National League, Joe Ross, yeah. Okay, Joe Ross. The other guy would be Hamill as well. He's a guy I really like. That's a super sleeper who, uh, when you look at his statistics, he is somebody who, I, like I said previously, who profiles quite reasonably closely, projects reasonably closely to Garrett Cole, um, he actually has a strikeout rate last year over one per inning. Uh, his his whip last year, last two years, has actually been right in line with what you could project with Cole. Not anything great, but reasonably something between uh, around 1.1 to 1.15, which is something that's clearly useful. And obviously there are some innings concerns in the fact that he's not a guy who's really viewed as a workhorse, I don't think, by the team. So I think that the hook can be short. But uh, I think he's going to give you enough strikeout efficiency to be useful. And I think the wins are very projectable as well to the extent that we can project them, considering that uh, the Cubs are the favorite to win the National League pennant, although Patrick and I, I think, strongly disagree on that. I'm a Reds fan, so I've got no horse in any race. But you hate the Cubs, probably. I've always felt sorry for them over the years. I'm old enough to remember when they were the sad sack team, and it's really hard to be kind of uh, spiteful towards them on the rare occasions when they look like they're going to be okay. And like I said, if I thought Cincinnati was in the running in the National League Central, then I'd be, of course, rooting against the Cubs and Pittsburgh and everybody in the division, St. Louis. Uh, you probably hate the Dodgers more. That's old school. You're exactly right. It was the Dodgers are the Reds' main rival for me going back to the Eric Davis days and Steve Garvey and those guys. Michael, thanks a million for doing this. I really do appreciate it. Tell listeners where they can read more of your work. Well, obviously at the Wall Street Journal, in the Wall Street Journal, but also at uh, WSJ.com, and always on Yahoo, at Yahoo Fantasy. You could just look at my archives, which are available. You could just find them by searching for Salfino Yahoo, and you'll be able to see all the stuff that I post. But I tweet it all the time, so just follow me on Twitter, at Michael Salfino. Michael, thanks again. It was terrific. Okay, great. Thanks, Patrick. It was great seeing you, too. And have a good year and good luck with your team. Thanks very much. Michael Salfino writes about fantasy baseball and real baseball, as well as other sports at The Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 11 of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. 
My thanks as well to our Tuesday Tout guest expert, Michael Salfino of the Wall Street Journal and Yahoo Sports. As you heard, Michael is a really fine analyst and a terrific writer who has a knack for looking at things in different ways, from different angles, and challenging the conventional wisdom. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Michael as much as I did. And by the way, he's a really good Twitter follow. Follow him at Michael Salfino, S-A-L-F-I-N-O. I'm Patrick Davitt. Hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with a regular news and comment edition featuring National and American League player news, the minor league minute, playing time and frequent flyers analysis, and master notes. That's all coming up Friday on the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.